we always think in the food security circles that we've come to grips with the with the complexity of the issue, and then another surprise comes along with a global crisis that shows us we have to go back to the drawing board and think a little bit more deeply around the um, the layers and the interrelatedness and how complexly intertwined the issues are, in this case, climate change, COVID and conflict. As we're now in the winter in the Northern Hemisphere, the need to stay warm and eat well is pressing. But over the last year, there are global pressures that have been working against us. Russia invaded Ukraine and the subsequent restrictions on exports from both of those countries is being felt in terms of fuel costs, but also food costs. At the same time, this year has seen droughts and flooding, which have affected global food production, and there have been continuing restrictions around COVID and economic activity. All of these factors are working together to increase food insecurity. I'm Paul Simpson, Partnerships Editor for the BMJ. We've been working with the World Innovation Summit for Health, who have supported the creation of a collection of articles looking at food security and health in a changing environment. And today I'm talking to some of the authors of those papers. Firstly, Cheryl Hendricks, who is an expert on food systems on the African continent and how the global market interacts with food insecurity there. I'm Cheryl Hendricks. I'm a professor of food security at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. The elements of food, finance, fuel, fertilizer and fodder are integrally um, related um, because for many of them, we're using the same source and pot of resources uh, and um, everyday markets um, and policymakers are making decisions about how we draw on those resources in order to feed an increasingly um, growing population um, and how we deal with the constraints and resources around those to make sure that there is we all that we are moving to a more equitable distribution of those food resources across the globe. So I think maybe front and center in a lot of people's minds over the last year has been conflict in Ukraine. And I think that that has really illustrated how the interconnectedness. And I wondered if you might just paint a little picture of how that conflict in Ukraine has has impacted food security and therefore health. Yeah, the crisis in Ukraine has certainly um, opened the eyes of many of us who thought we knew much about food security, <laughs> but exposed the real interconnectedness of our globalized world. Um, we had no idea of the concentration of um, demand for food, grain in particular, wheat and wheat, maize and sunflower are the three major commodities that are coming from Ukraine um, and Russia. And how much since the last major global crisis of 2007-2008 the, that African countries in particular have started to rely on imports from those countries for um, for those three commodities. Um, so nobody really had an inkling um, in the 2007-2008 food price crisis, the AIMS facility was set up for the first time where countries declared how much 
grain they had um, on hand in countries, but nobody was really tracking um, the source of, of those um, grain resources. So, yeah, um, the concentration of, of our demand for food has really been exposed um, in this. I think none of us would have ever known that our food largely comes from Ukraine or from Russia. Um, could you give us a, a kind of a sense of how um, how how large a, a kind of reliance it is across, I guess, is it North Africa or is it all through Africa? Yeah, sure. Particularly um, East and um, North Africa rely quite considerably, anywhere from 30 to 70 percent of the wheat in particular is coming um, from Ukraine or from Russia. It's a little bit less so in the West where the major food commodity is rice, although now with the floods in Pakistan, those we haven't quite seen what's going to happen to the rice market and how it will affect. Um, but that that is more of a once-off crisis. The biggest challenge with the war in the Ukraine is we have no idea how long it's going to um, continue for and how that is going to affect the harvest that should be coming up now. So we still haven't been able to move last year's grain or the last season's grain stocks out of the silos um, in the Ukraine, um, and soon they will be harvesting more. So the chances of significant waste of food resources is quite high. And and I think the so I I think that um, just as I was probably a little bit naive about food security in the food system and and where where food is coming from, I think that sometimes it can be um, it, it can be tempted to think in a quite a simple way about what the implications are of disruptions within the system for health. Um, and so, what what is the impact? Is it simply undernutrition and and hungry bellies? Or is it more complicated than that, which I guess it probably is? The, when, when we realize this concentration of grain and um, given the high import bills that many of the developing countries that um, rely for 30 to 70 percent um, of the grain from Russia and Ukraine, um, you start to realize how public policies have shifted more towards imports rather than country policies that make the most of the opportunity in the particular country. Um, um, so increasing your food bill um, exposes you to the risks um, of the uh, international community um, and exposes how since 2007-2008, countries haven't really invested in looking at the local food production system and how consumption preferences are driving the demand for particularly those highly processed grains um, in, in wheat and maize. Um, and how, so countries are essentially pandering to the demand for these commodities, whereas there may be other more nutritious crops that could have much better um, benefits for local uh, producers. 
such as sorghums, millets, um, and other local grains. Um, and it just shows the, the preferences um, of people and the aspirations towards achieving that. But on the other hand, um, many of those processed grains are ready to cook or ready, they do not need a huge amount of processing. So there's quite a considerable trade-off to consider um, in how much energy is needed to cook those staple foods or, for example, with bread, which um, in today's world can last about a week um, because of the preservatives in it. Um, and so it, uh, is, it has its shelf stable without requiring any energy in preparation. In fact, if you have to, you can eat bread just as it is. Um, so for consumers, we have to think it's not necessarily just their consumer preferences for those foods, but necessity because of the rising cost of energy um, that is needed. And developing world countries, the most traditional diets require quite considerable amounts of energy to prepare. And many of those food sources, those fuel sources um, are also dirty energy, essentially. So there's the elements around air pollution, around respiratory health, as well as what it's doing to the environment. So food systems are certainly helping people to think in more complex ways and realizing that what might seem a simple solution to an outsider might actually have significant um, trade-offs um, and often unintended consequences for the particular um, context in which somebody is recommending a policy decision. Cheryl's article, Global Environmental Climate Change, COVID-19 and Conflict Threaten Food Security and Nutrition, is online and free to access now. Next, I had a conversation with Renzo Guinto and Tim Benton at the recent WISH conference, who have a health and logistics perspective on the food system. I'm a physician from the Philippines, a public health physician, a physician who early on in my medical education realized that the planet is burning. It's affecting, unfortunately, the health of my community and my patients and patients-to-be. And so early on, I decided to step out of the clinic and you know, embrace a planetary health perspective that, that looks at health from, from a much broader uh, view, you know, the connections between health of people and the health of the planet. So, so that's who I am. Uh, well, in terms of the hats that I wear right now, uh, I am leading two centers in Southeast Asia. One is I'm the director of the Planetary and Global Health Program uh, at the St. Luke's Medical Center in the Philippines. And my other hat is that of a chief uh, the chief planetary health scientist of the new Sunway Center for Planetary Health based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Perfect. Tim? Uh, I'm Tim Benton. I am the uh, a research director at Chatham House and I direct the Environment and Society program. And I'm also a professor at the University of Leeds. And I have 20, 30, 40, uh, God knows how, how much experience in thinking about sustainability in the broad sense and particularly in the interactions between environmental change climate change, biodiversity loss and so on, and food systems and what they mean for people, economies and politics. So I wanted to start because in, in the UK, you know, for most of our listeners, I think, you know, most of them will be will not really understand what their lived experience of being 
uh, food insecure actually means. I think in the UK, for example, there's about 92% of the population would consider themselves to be food secure. But, you know, recent events, COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, I think will have started to bring that kind of reality to people that have for many, many years not faced food insecurity. And I wondered whether we could start, maybe Tim, you might describe what food security really is and why, why it actually can be quite a fragile, the food system can be quite a fragile one. Thanks, Paul. Um, so food security is basically having enough food at a price that you can afford to underpin a healthy life at all times for all people. Um, if you take the kind of more rounded definition, are you buying the right food for life, lifelong health, then food insecurity is a lot bigger. Mm. And certainly when you look on a global basis, the most vulnerable populations in rich world country, but particularly in poor world countries, are huge. And one of the kind of startling things is that as the world has got more globalised, almost no country, possibly no country, food security depends on its own domestic production. Almost every country requires food that is imported. And as we've seen with Ukraine on the back of COVID, with the impacts of climate change this year, disrupting supply chains, the whole caboodle of just-in-time global supply chains is incredibly fragile. And the way the market works is that if food is exported from a breadbasket country and something happens to that, prices go up, marginal pricing, uh, according to who is the most expensive person you can buy the food from, uh, other country, supplying country you can buy the food from. So there is a huge issue in the way that the market works, the globalised trading market, that as soon as you get disruption, prices go through the roof. And as soon as prices go through the roof, governments panic and say, we're not going to have enough food the market panics even more because governments are panicking. They're putting in place the wrong policies and so on. And so you get this accelerating food price and spike, and that's what we've uh, encompassed this year. You also mentioned uh, the breadbasket countries. And so if it's all about supply chains, I wonder whether you might sort of paint a picture for, or, or, <laughs> or sing a song, I guess, for, for our <laughs> listeners, of, of what, you know, of what does, what, where are the kind of main countries? Where, where are those breadbasket countries? What are they producing? How does those supply chains look? I mean, that's obviously yeah. it's very complex. but Well, so. it's not actually because okay. over the last 60 years, um, we have really concentrated down through the dynamics of the market uh, to largely being supplied on a global basis by eight, eight crops, uh, rice, wheat, maize, potato, soy, sugar, and what? rice, wheat, maize, bar- barley. <laughs> uh, sorry, <laughs> one of those senior moments. So those crops are grown at an enormous scale because the market can be dominated by the lowest cost producer. So the incentives are to grow them at scale and intensity because then you kind of corner the global market. So those... Uh, area, those crops are typically coming from five or six major breadbasket areas. You know, so maize, largely the Midwest with a bit of China. Soya and sugar, largely Latin America. Uh, wheat, largely uh, Europe. Rice, Southeast Asia. Um, barley across some of those other grain-growing areas. And then oil 
uh, palm oil and so on from uh, Indonesia, Malaysia. So 75% of the world's calories come from those crops. And if you look back, uh, even in recent history, I, uh, I remember a paper that something like 1,400 crops were eaten across India mm-hmm. as part of indigenous food. Right. Um, so those eight crops underpinning most of the global food production is just it, it, it's just nonsensical in the sense of resilience and diversity mm. and health giving properties, but it's very sensible if you just want uh, farming to be outdoor factories to produce calories right. that are easy to ship around the world and to add the most value to by processing and all the rest of that. And that's why we are in okay. the situation we're in. Okay, that's great. So, I mean, we, we've raced ahead already just straight into the kind of food system. Um, but obviously, you know, we're a medical journal, we're interested in health. So I wanted to turn to, to Renzo, really, to, to kind of start to paint a picture of this, the concept of planetary health. So, you know, why should we care about the food system if we care in, about health and the planet? How does, how does that all connect it together? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I'm just amazed by the explanation of Tim uh, and, and the description of the complex food system that we have uh, both domestically and, and as, as a global food system. Um, you begin to think, oh, you know, as a physician, you cannot just be anymore be sitting on the clinic, in the clinic and uh, treating patients who arrive, children who are, you know, for example, experiencing undernutrition and stunting. Uh, the Philippines, for example, uh, has, uh, you know, one out of three children are stunted. Uh, around 15% of our population uh, report that they are uh, hungry. Uh, and so these are real public health issues that as a physician, we see every day in the clinic, in the community, but then you realize, you know, my pill, my treatment is not anymore going to work because you need to address some much bigger issues, many of which uh, were discussed by Tim a while ago. And so because of this recognition that we need a much more integrated and holistic approach, I guess that's why planetary health, the concept, was born. Mm -hmm. Uh, And let me define planetary health. Um, You know, it was defined as this, uh, you know, integrated approach that looks into the health, not just of people, but also of the planet. Uh, Public health is something much more familiar, perhaps, to our audience. Mm -hmm. But over the past century, public health being very much focused only on the health of people has actually ignored, neglected the planet. We've been putting food on the table to advance uh, our nutritional status at the expense of natural ecosystems. We've been turning forests into farmlands. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've been destroying, uh, again, natural ecosystems in the name of large-scale agricultural production, in the name of nutrition. Uh, And that's just one example of how we have truly improved uh, our situation as a global population, as a humanity, but ignored the health of the planet on which our health and well-being uh, truly depends. If you think about the way that the food system degrades the environment, then it's responsible for 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions, 30% thereabouts. Uh, It's responsible for something like 80% of biodiversity loss. Uh, It's the most polluting sector in the world, Uh, uses a lot of water, pollutes a lot of water, degrades soils, etc. All of that creates environmental damage, which at some point directly and indirectly imperils health whether it is through climate change, and I'll come back to that in a minute, or whether it is through uh, direct impacts of of pollution. 
And yet, at the same time, our long-term health also depends clearly on our nutritional status, which requires a diversity of fruits and vegetables and uh, et cetera, et cetera, the right caloric in, in, in intake and so on. So climate change, uh, the, the food impacts the environment and the environment impacts food. As uh, we're kind of focusing today on climate change, as we drive the climate, what does that do? Well, that immediately changes where we can grow the right the, the sorts of crops and to a first approximation that it moves the crop growing area towards the global north or the global south depending on the on the hemisphere so it disrupts uh, over time local agricultural systems but perhaps more insidiously of course as the climate changes so does the weather and what we are particularly palpably feeling this decade is the way that weather is changing particularly extremes and part of that is driven by the way that the jet stream works so as the north and south the, the poles and the equator as the poles melt, melt uh, the temperature differential between the two changes and the energy in the jet stream changes and the jet stream becomes more wavy as it becomes more wavy if the wave goes down it sucks cold air from the north as it, as the wave goes up it sucks hot air from the south so what you get in a year like this is you get alternate belts of very hot very cold wet very hot all around the northern hemisphere and we have really felt that this year if you just think about pakistan india mm. extreme heat yeah. one minute extreme rainfall the next mm. minute so of course those uh, uh, climate impacts immediately affect food security of the people in the region but because of this interconnected nature of the global food system they also contribute to this dysfunctionality of the market that supply from important areas goes down market responds prices go up everybody in the world on a budget then can't get what they're used to getting. Mm -hmm. And so that interconnection, interconnectedness between we rely on the environment for our food, but our food habits are driving climate change, environmental destruction, and those are in turn coming back and stopping us getting the food that we need. So the, the, the current food system isn't working for the environment and it's not working for people's health. So who does it work for? Yeah, good question. So. It kind of does work for people because it provides uh, for most people, uh, particularly in the global north, an excess of palatable, highly delicious, nicely plastic packaged food that you can just buy in a supermarket and put in a microwave at the end of a long day. So it kind of works, but it doesn't deliver health. It kind of works for farmers particularly if you're a large-scale industrial farmer because the economies of scale and the potential profits are pretty good. It doesn't work for healthcare systems, but it does work for governments because uh, those countries that are good at exporting can grow an excess of food, export it, and it's good for balance of payments. But it particularly works for the industry in the middle, particularly the big industry, because margins are quite small throughout any supply chain, but if you're big enough, you can make a, an enormous profit from, from that. So it's born of 60, 70 years of increasing concentration in the food system. And now we have a very small number of very large companies that are effectively controlling the food system with political buy-in. It 
includes an enormous number of jobs on a global basis. So governments like it because it's such a big employer. But it doesn't really work for people in the kind of citizen sense, the broad swathe of people. So you both must be used to kind of hearing this feels like a bleak picture. But when I hear you talk about this, I actually hear that we really have to rethink a lot of the ways that we that we work and I think have some potentially quite uncomfortable conversations. Maybe I'll turn to you, Renzo, about that because this is something I heard you speak eloquently on. What are the uncomfortable conversations that we need to start having? Well, you know, coming from the Philippines, it's already uncomfortable to be living in a warming planet, right? And, um, you know, for example, in my work, you know, you go to coastal communities that are already experiencing sea level rise. By the way, the Philippines is facing some of the fastest rates of sea level rise in the world as a result of the melting of the ice that the team was uh, mentioning a while ago. Um, and, and you see seawater, which is high in salt, intruding into freshwater systems, including into the rice paddies. And that can also affect, um, you know, food harvest, rice harvest. Meanwhile, you go to the sea, uh, the Philippines has more than uh, 7,000 islands. So we're a very, um, a country that's very reliant on on fisheries. And now you hear fisher folks saying, we're not anymore catching the same amount that we were that we used to catch maybe 10 years ago because of the warming of the sea, sea level rise, coral bleaching. So when the corals, which are the forests of the sea, where the fish uh, live and thrive, they become white, they become, um, they die, basically. That is also contributing to the growing food insecurity of the country and of the region. So, so you know, it's already uncomfortable um, living in those scenarios, in those settings. And we need uncomfortable conversations about how to redesign our agricultural and fishery systems, because I added fisheries as well, but, but also the economic model on which these food production systems that are you know, following the industrial model are, are greatly anchored on. And you know, oftentimes we hear, oh, you know, we uh, come up with these policies and um, you hear uh, the lobbying and the influence of big food and the big industries and the voices of the farmers and the fisher folks who are providing food uh, that we put on the table are not being listened to. You know, I think those are some of the major uh, issues that we need to uh, be tackling. And, and you know, these are issues that are systemic issues that require more inclusivity and diversity um, in discussions that require amplifying voices that have been left unheard and faces that have been invisible in these food conversations. Um, we can even argue that our food system is very much patterned after uh, colonialism, right? We're be- being very colonizing of the earth. We're colonizing of the ability of future children to be able to feed themselves. We're colonizing other lands that produce food for for, for ourselves, uh, but they don't get anything in return. Well, they get something in return. That is climate catastrophe because of carbon emissions. So these are just some uncomfortable conversations. And you know, now I'm reflecting as a physician, we're not used to these kinds of conversations. I think this is a call for us in the health sector, the health professions, to be to open our minds, to listen to other perspectives and voices, to do our homework, mm-hmm. because we cannot be 
involved in these difficult conversations if we are not ready to have a negotiation or uh, to exchange ideas and to even debate about the future of the health and nutrition of our world. So I'd like to stay with, with you for another minute or two because um, you know, I think where, where, where we got to in the conversation is we're talking about the health se- system, health sector. You know, so we're talking about um, you know, the, uh, individuals who are working in that system and the system itself. You know, and sometimes I think you know, climate can feel like such a big problem that it has to be fixed at a multilateral level. And I think that you know, I'd like to go back to Tim on that in a minute. But you know, what, what can our listeners, you know, what, what do they need to be thinking about in, their, in, their, in that space, in the health system space? It's good that you made that distinction because individual health professionals can play an important role in terms of educating our patients, in terms of advocacy. If you're a teacher in a medical school, you should be teaching about climate change and how it's impacting health and nutrition to your medical students, who, by the way, will become the doctors and the nurses treating these climate-sensitive disorders that, will be, uh, that we will be witnessing in the next several years and decades. So as individuals, we already have an important role to play. But you also mentioned that the health sector as a whole, health systems, healthcare institutions, hospital networks, they also do play uh, a critical role. Um, and you know, a lot of that uh, function uh, is, for example, in the realm of changing practices within the healthcare system. You know, for example, you know, in, in Asia, you have lots of examples from around the world, but I'm more familiar with examples from my part of the world. You have the uh, Chu Chi Foundation Hospital Network in Taiwan. They're already feeding their patients and staff with plant-based diets that they produce within their own backyard. You know, food that they are not transporting from some other country, uh, which in a way is also contributing to carbon emissions. So, so there are already some examples of how healthcare institutions are doing their part, albeit small, to address the climate crisis. But I would love to see ministries of health, right, and and governments and. Even the World Health Organization, and and they're doing a good job in terms of highlighting and elevating uh, the climate change and health nexus. For example, in you know COPs in the climate negotiations, uh, but I think more can be done in terms of one walking the talk. We can't be preaching to the others saying you have to decarbonize and we've not done our part within our healthcare facilities and our healthcare institutions. But also we need to really use the power of our evidence. You know the the evidence of the health impacts of climate change, I would say is already at a sufficient level. There's so many things that still need to be researched on um, and to be published in the BMJ. That's, that's, that's still a, 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 um, an agenda that needs to be moved forward. But I think we already have the enough evidence that we can use to speak truth to power, to advocate to other sectors, to transform you know, the political and economic discourse that will hopefully address the climate crisis, perhaps the most existential public health threat of our time. So that's the role of, of, of advocacy and, and, and power within the health system. But if I turn back to you, Tim, you know, let's imagine that you're, you're the, well, you are the world's advisor, you know, on this. You know, so what's the uncomfortable conversations that governments have got to have? You know, what, what, what's going to have to change? Yeah, well, it's a good question. Um, basically, we need our food system to deliver healthy diets sustainably produced to all people. 
So that means we need to change the global and local food markets. Markets not in the sense of a Saturday market or a supermarket, but markets in the sense of the way that food is traded, and particularly the incentives that go in our, as Renzo called it, industrial food system, which was premised after the Second World War on we need uh, calories now because many people are starving. And what has happened is we've got really good at producing calories through these grain crops, and we now have an excess of them in the world. They're not distributed right, so they're still hungry people, but we now have so much grain that we're turning it into biofuels or bioplastics or particularly into animal feed. So over 60% of all grain production in Europe now goes into animal feed. And a stat that one of my colleagues calculated that had in Europe, EU27 plus UK, had we eaten 15% less chicken and pork, which tends to eat uh, human-grade wheat, uh, uh, grain, had we eaten 15% less across Europe only, it would have saved more grain than was blocked in Ukraine, and therefore would have taken the sting out of the global food crisis. So our industrial system has been driven in a way of underpinning human diets, not through nutrition, but through calorie production. So to change that requires us to change the subsidies, to change the incentives on what is produced, how it's produced, where it's produced, how it's traded. And there are zillions of policy levers that could be put in place from subsidies, research infrastructure, through production, what uh, technologies are used on farm, supply chains, cold chains, particularly for fruit and vegetables and processing ability, through shipping, logistics, packaging, blah, 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 through to planning law and things like that in terms of do you allow fast food restaurants to be sited at school gates so that people coming out of school can just snack, Uh, education, you know, the whole range of things that could be done. But the basics of what we need to do to, in economic speak, internalise the externalities of the food system and the externalities of the healthcare costs and the uh, environmental costs. To internalise the externalities, we've got to get diets right. And to get diets right, we've got to get markets right. And that leads to two very big, difficult conversations. One is, where does meat fit in the diet? because meat is very high footprint food to produce. Many people eat too much of it, uh, but is there are all sorts of cultural and pseudo-cultural uh, 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 things wrapped up in uh, uh, reducing meat on, uh, on a global level. Uh, and the second one is really the ideology of the markets. So first one about meat and diets. The second one of the ideology of the markets, that many governments, particularly right-wing governments, see the the answer is always, let's liberate the market, let's deregulate the market. And if people want to buy any rubbish food, they should be allowed to buy any rubbish food, even if it impacts on their health and environment. So there is a political question about, do you put the market first? Or do you put people first? And then there is the socio-political thing about where does meat fit in the diet? And both of those, of course, have uh, a deep, deep incumbent power challenge. And of course, incumbency is typically associated with the rich and the powerful. And therefore, that has a another kind of meta level of socio-political challenge about it. But if we got our food system right, 
we would reduce the pressure on land, we would reduce the pressure on the climate, we would conserve biodiversity, we would be healthier as people, we wouldn't waste so much food. What is there not to kind of play for in this space? Farmers could make just as much a livelihood of selling different things at different prices in different amounts, produced in different ways. The market would be able to work, but that link in through to changing things for the better really stumbles against political and uh, uh, economic incumbency. So I've, I've got um, two more questions um, for each of you. So I'm going to ask Renzo, if you might tackle the meat question, where does meat fit in the diet? And then while you're answering that, I'm going to give you a couple of seconds to think about the political question, which is, um, what is the lever, what's the number of one lever, I think, to kind of tackle that political power challenge, I think. So where does meat fit in the diet, Renzo? Wow. You know, it's that's a difficult in- one. <laughs> it's a difficult one. It's interesting because I come from a country that is a lover of meat. <laughs> uh, but then, of course, we need to uh, think about the planet. We think we need to start considering also the health impacts of uh, especially excessive meat consumption. Um, you know, reducing meat consumption will definitely reap or allow us to enjoy a lot of benefits, both health benefits as well as environmental benefits, lower carbon, which will uh, lead to um, the stabilization of the climate. Uh, And then when it comes to public health and nutrition, uh, less uh, cancers, uh, less risk of zoonosis, because as we interact more with these animals, the likelihood of a pathogen, another pathogen jumping from an animal to human being just becomes much higher. Uh, antimicrobial resistance as well, uh, because we've been using a lot of antibiotics uh, in order to take care of these animals. So, so you know, we'll definitely benefit a lot if we reduce uh, meat consumption. And, you know, I, I'm a while ago, we were talking about planetary health. And a few years back, there was this proposal, a planetary health diet that uh, really uh, requires us to reduce dramatically our meat consumption. Um, I guess, you know, that's something that is really worth considering by many governments, many societies, many communities. But we need to also make sure that if we're going to implement such measure, you know, reducing meat, for example, and increasing uh, the consumption of other healthier and more sustainable uh, food products, uh, then we approach this with uh, a very strong uh, equity and justice lens. Mm -hmm. Because there are also other communities around the world that are not even consuming any meat at all. And they're also experiencing, for example, you know, protein deficiency. And we know protein is quite important also for human health and survival. So we need to be, I guess, a bit more nuanced. But also, you know, this is, I think, a space for creativity and innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to see more local social entrepreneurs coming up with new ways of feeding people in a way that, respects the planet but also makes us healthy and happy so going back to that political question and i don't think you can answer it in one go but i guess if you had what what would be the one lever that you would want to see pulled that would change things well there's a kind of big industry playbook that says put the blame on the consumer we only grow tobacco because people want to smoke We only create energy because people want to use energy, using fossil fuels or whatever it is. We only produce these foods because people buy foods. And so 
the kind of the the corollary of that situation is that unless consumers change their habits then the industry won't do anything but that's never going to happen because people aren't in able very often to change their food consumption habits because of price or availability or whatever it might be so what i think is the back door the secret way in is instead of in this space politics and industry talk about consumers we should be talking about people and people as political actors because everybody within most systems will have some sort of vote Mm-hmm. And if we say we want to change, we want the system to change, then politicians start paying attention. And, you know, climate change is, a, is an interesting analogy because more and more people, you know, in the UK at the moment, uh, uh, a right-wing government really trying to drive back us, us back towards more fossil fuels, people are saying, no, we don't want that. We mm-hmm. want more renewable energy. We want more electric cars. Uh, and we can do the same in the food system. So I think the political levers are really about politicising the food system so that it becomes a political issue mm-hmm. and uh, politicians are competing amongst themselves not to be greenwashed green, but to be kind of deep green and recognise that actually society will be better if we go through this low-carbon trans- transition sustainability transition and food system transition they're all deeply intertwined and we'll be better off and our health system will be under less pressure we'll be happier and healthier climate anxiety will go away mental health issues will decline particularly in the young and we'll have a a world which is a much nicer place to live in and if it's a nice place to live in hopefully conflict will be less uh, prevalent because you know part of the geopolitical tensions at the moment are driven by thinking about resource security, thinking about climate security, thinking about water security, and it's not a a, a good place for the world to be in. So politicise, vote for politicians who care. So here's my final question to you both. Same same question. Do you feel optimistic? I feel optimistic, especially when I encounter fellow young doctors, fellow young people who, despite, you know, you mentioned, Tim, a while ago, the climate anxiety that many young people are are currently experiencing. But I think young people and young health professionals are finding ways to convert that anxiety into agency and action. They're clamoring for changes. They are mobilizing themselves. They are, you know, talking about these topics, very difficult conversations over you know, podcasts and webinars and writing about them, tweeting about these <laughs> issues. So so that's my source of optimism, right? Even if, you know, the institutions, the politicians, the unfortunately uh, the adults <laughs> who are currently governing the world are not somehow giving us some some source of hope. It, it's really the young people and the young health professionals. Um of course, we have a climate deadline. Paris Agreement says we only have eight years remaining from now, 2030. Um, and I hope that young people will you know, not feel exhausted, but also will accelerate you know, the mobilization and the action. Again, because time is running out, we need to feed people, make them live healthy and happy lives, and at the same time, make the planet healthy and happy too. <laughs> Um, and, and that's a big challenge. But again, young people hopefully will be the source, the constant source of optimism and hope. Tim, do you feel optimistic? 
I feel optimistic when I meet uh, young, enthusiastic medical <laughs> professionals. <laughs> like Renzo. <laughs> like Renzo. Um, no, I mean, when I lose my optimism will be the time to retire. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a... I have ultimate faith that as humanity, we are broadly able to be rational about these issues. Uh, and it might take a few kicks from the environment uh, causing us pain for us to kind of drive, you know, painful for the people involved, but for to drive the kind of eco- economic and political momentum. But I think we will get there. And, you know, it might be a shame that I don't see it in my lifetime, but Renzo and Renzo's children will be the ones who will be driving it forwards. And in the long run, the benefits are so much greater than the costs. It just is crazy that we're not working faster at delivering these benefits. Well, thank you both. You've been listening to Cheryl Hendricks, Renzo Guinto and Tim Benton talk about health and climate change. The collection Food Security and Health in a Changing Environment recognising and mitigating risks is now available for free on bmj.com and of course we'll be continuing to cover the impact of food on health in both our climate and nutrition coverage we'll be back next week so please do subscribe on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out i'm paul simpson thanks for listening